So, picture the scene. You have this King of England, right? He's just settling in for the long haul. He's been on the throne for about a dozen years so far. He's young, he's healthy. This guy's going to be around for a while. He has overcome any issue facing him. I mean, think about it. He wasn't even supposed to be king. His older brother was. Yet this guy colluded with his father to usurp the throne. Within two years, almost all the big land magnates of England and Normandy had rebelled against this and tried real hard to put his older brother on the throne. He saw them off. A few years later, there was another rebellion of the big landlords, especially up north, because he wasn't allowing them to marry their kids off to one another. Whatever the reason, he saw them off. He'd faced war with Wales. He'd dealt with that. He'd been involved in wars with Scotland. He'd dealt with that. He'd sailed over a few times to Normandy to beat the living daylights out of his older brother and his forces. He'd dealt with that. Militarily, this king was secure. Meanwhile, economically, well, his nation was screwed. And this king had taxed the living hell out of the place and recently demanded an emergency tax, which had caused a bullion shortage. But the king himself, he's fine. He has this genius wheeler-dealer type called Ranal Flambard, who is brilliant at extracting every available penny out of the country. So he's good, economically. The king is secure. And politically... Well, his older brother had just had to mortgage Normandy to him so he could go play Crusader. So now this king rules Normandy as well and had been doing that for a few years and politically there was no one around and nothing on the horizon that could trouble him. William Rufus is strong, secure and looking forward to a good reign ahead. You can imagine then the shock when he's dead the next year and why people thought that his death was a murder and why, some people suggested, it was an assassination. I think we need to talk about that. Hi, my name is Saul and this is The Story of London, a podcast dedicated to the history of the city as it goes through time. This chapter we're going to take one last look at William Rufus and the suspicious nature of his death. But mostly, I get to talk about London, about life in the city while this madness was going on around it. Welcome then to chapter 56 of the story, The Hounds of London. You know, when I started research on this section of the story, I was quite indifferent to William II. I had all the information I needed about what was going on in London at the time, but I wanted to learn a bit more about William's life as background material. Yet the more I dived into it, the more I found myself kind of liking this king. Oh, don't get me wrong. He was a human being living in the 11th century. He, like everyone in this era, is a monster by modern standards. But he is a complex and intriguing character filled with a frenetic energy, and he makes me laugh a lot. There's a story written by William of Malmesbury that was probably not entirely true, but I like it anyway. The story goes that one day William II was getting dressed, and as he was putting on his shoes, he turned to a nearby manservant and asked him, how much did the shoes cost? The servant replied that they had cost a shilling. At this, the story goes, King William grew furious and screamed, quote, you son of a bitch! Since when has a king worn such 
tawdry shoes. Go get me some that cost a mark of silver, unquote. Now the story goes on to say that the king flung the shoes at the servant and the servant ran out and then got a pair of even cheaper shoes and presented them saying they cost a full mark of silver. William, none the wiser, strode around in them happily. Now, whenever you see a story that looks like a parable, sounds like a parable, and acts like a parable, it's probably made up. But I like the tale, as it illustrates several aspects of William Rufus's character. He swore a lot, he liked bling, and he wasn't afraid to spend money. And it also illustrates that, kind of just behind the curtains of his grand public seeming, things could be, well, you know, a little bit crap. If you want an illustration of how this little anecdote illustrates the reality of his reign, well, look no further than his brand new palace complex over on Thorny Island, the Palace of Westminster. I mean, it looked incredibly grand and impressive, especially that brand new massive hall he'd constructed. But that's the whole point. It looked awesome, but the practicalities of life on Thorny Island were always a had more complicated? I mean, think about it this way. Thorny Island was separated from the mainland of England by the Thames River on one side and the River Tyburn on two other sides. And all the land leading up to it was very marshy and very difficult terrain. With a few defensive ditches and moats added during the rebuilding of the palace, Thorny was entirely isolated from the rest of England. An island on the Thames, the seat of royal power in the region. But the problem William Rufus had when he built that grand hall was, well, when he started constructing this mammoth creation, all the best land on Thorny had already been used to build the abbey and the earlier residencies. When it was being made, the many construction gangs had to work through and on a morass of waterlogged clay soil. The whole site was always prone to flooding. The west wall lay flush with the ground on Thorny, and the north wall had the waters of the Thames lapping against it. Which means anyone attending the king's feast would find the great hall grand and wonderful, but on their walk back to their accommodation on the island, their expensive shoes would have possibly been ruined as they squelched their way across the island in the dark. Added to that, they could well have been mugged. Oh yes, you see, Westminster at night, the complex of the King and Westminster Abbey, was actually a dangerous place to travel through at night, mostly due to the large population of hardcore criminals who lived there. Hardcore criminals? I need to explain. Westminster, the Abbey of St. Peter's, that big old church and monastery, was technically under ecclesiastical law, and the abbot and the monks guarded their independence fiercely which meant that any noble or local sheriff had no jurisdiction upon its church grounds, which made it a perfect place for sanctuary for any and all criminals seeking shelter from the rather draconian law codes that were enacted at this time. So, here's Thorny Island. It has a big church, newly built, where all the kings seemed to be getting their coronations, and it had a brand new royal palace where the king would live in a few weeks out of each year, whenever he held court in the London region, basically. And aside from those moments, and the monks and the servants who lived on the island permanently, the mainstay of the population seems to have been 
hardened criminals on the run from local sheriffs. Every fugitive from nearby shires would have all known that if the local sheriffs were after you, all you had to do was present yourself to the monks on Thorny Island and hey presto, you were safe. This of course created more than a few headaches for the small community of monks. We know that in response to this large number of criminals coming in, the monks got the fugitives to swear strict oaths to obey and live by harsh conditions. We're not exactly sure when that started, but we do know that when Abbot Gilbert Crispin was in charge of the monastery, these oaths did exist. And since Abbot Gilbert Christian was around during the reigns of William II and Henry I, that would be now then. You get the impression that these criminals then were kind of like criminals now. Not always the brightest bunch, but always quick to spot an opportunity to make money. Apparently, the monks would feed these poor penitent criminals on the run with food taken from their own supplies. The fugitives, however, would take this food and sell it at a considerable markup to any pilgrims coming to Westminster to visit the shrine of King Edward or any of the holy relics it supposedly contained. The monks had to stop them from doing this. It looks as if the fugitives kept the monks busy and yes, safeguards were put in place to protect the king and the court from the trouble they caused. But as I said, the conditions upon Thorny Island really do sum up William Rufus. It looks grand and splendid, but scratch below the surface and the fine detail is a little bit grim. Still, William was a man possessing a great sense of humour. But that sometimes also had weird repercussions upon London. I mentioned two episodes ago that William Rufus only ever held one major event in his brand new Westminster Hall, and that was the court held over the Pentecost of the year 1099. It was a sumptuous and lavish affair, and as the king came in with the procession in front of him, King Malcolm of Scotland was part of that procession, carrying some ceremonial sword, and Edgar Aetheling was there. This is before he ended up in the Holy Land, and he was back in with the regime, and apparently he's been paid 40 shillings per day by the king just for being the last Anglo-Saxon claimant to the throne. The whole event was lavish, but there was one weird incident that took place that needs repeating, and it's all to do with a guy called Walter Gifford. Walter was known to the king. I've read one historian describe him as the king's bastard cousin, a genealogy I have not been able to verify or work out. But anyway, Walter was named after his father, also called Walter, and the older Walter had been one of William the Conqueror's close companions and had been with him back when he sailed over in 1066. Apparently, it supplied William with 30 ships. Walter the Younger was one of the crucial Norman lords of England. He owned huge amounts of Buckinghamshire, and also some really important castles over in Normandy. William Rufus had lavished him with gold and had got him to side against William Rufus's elder brother, Robert, Duke of Normandy, and as such, Walter was a crucial ally for the king in his ongoing struggles with his older brother. Anyway, at the Pentecost Court at Westminster Hall, Walter was present. He'd arrived the previous month with over 30 young squires in his retinue. Walter wanted them knighted, and the king was supposed to oblige. Yet, William Rufus had not gotten around to it yet, and Walter felt this was a bit of a diss. So he responded by staging a symbolic protest. He had all 30 squires shave their heads really close, 
basically giving him kind of skinhead haircuts, and then he shaved his own head accordingly. Understand, by all accounts, the fashion at this time was for long hair. So you can imagine the impact of 30 skinheads led by a man who was now or about to be made the first Earl of Buckinghamshire, walking into this grand gathering. William Rufus, however, roared with laughter, certainly didn't take offence, took the hint and ordered 20 of his own English base squires to do the same so that they could all be knighted together. The account of this by Gaynor goes on to say that over 300 men copied this fashion and that the knighting ceremony with all these little skinheads was conducted in great splendour and that as a consequence London was briefly overrun by a large influx of skinhead knights. Again, it's almost too good a story to be true, but it is a fascinating insight into this king. And now we have a slightly better measure of this guy. We need to understand the last big political conflict of his life. The return of his brother, Robert, Duke of Normandy, from the Crusades, an event we covered last chapter. Robert was coming home. He was married now. He was a crusader and a war hero. He had earned his chops fighting across the Middle East. He had expected to turn up and be given Normandy back by his younger brother. But William, he didn't want to. Normandy was profitable for him. He did not want to hand it back, but he wasn't fully committed to waging war with his older brother for it yet. There are many debates about if William Rufus was planning to go to war with his brother, but then came a sudden and unexpected surprise that threw out everybody's calculations. Apparently, as news of the Great Crusader victory reached Western European ears, this excited a whole new bunch of nobles who suddenly also now had the urge to take up arms and make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And one of them was called William, the ninth Duke of Aquitaine. Known as William the Troubadour, he was an incredibly powerful French noble and he wanted to go to Jerusalem. Only like Robert, Duke of Normandy, he didn't have the funds to be able to afford a proper pilgrimage. And from his point of view, what Robert had done had worked out for him. He'd raised the funds, gone off, been a hero, and was now returning, and he'd done that by mortgaging his lands to William Rufus. Why not, said the Duke of Aquitaine, do the same thing? Mortgage his entire duchy to the English king and use the funds to go get great glory in the Holy Land and then come home. To William Rufus, this was potentially a game changer. He could allow his brother retake Normandy because he was about to get Aquitaine to run for a few years. Or maybe he could hold on to both. This was a staggering move, one that would have escalated the king's power, and one that caused no small degree of panic over in Paris. The French king was not absolute lord over his vassals. The king ruled quite a small amount of land, and his dukes could and did pose serious threats to his power. If the king of England, William Rufus, gained Aquitaine, as well as owning Normandy, he would be more powerful in France than the King of France. It presented the French with some very serious concerns, really staggeringly serious concerns. Something would have to be done. But before we talk about what happened next, due to the nature of this podcast, I keep asking myself, what was London doing during this? Well, we know that our records are mostly church-based and there does seem to have been a great expansion of church building going on. Over in Clerkenwell, a Benedictine nunnery was founded, 
on the site of today's St. James's Clerkenwell. And we also have a grant given to a monastery over in Gloucester which mentions the church that would become St. Martin Vintry on the east side of College Hill, fronting Upper Thames Street, also from the year 1100. And it is from 1100 that we have a record of a corn market being held on the hill over on the east side of the city. Within 30 years, this market, located on a steep gradient of the hill opposite Ludgate, where St. Paul's was stood, would give its name to the street it was located on, Cornhill, which to this day stretches from Bank to St. Mary's Axe. And speaking of St. Paul's, there's a moment from London's history that apparently took place in the year 1100 that offers a wonderful insight into life in the city at the time, and I liked it so much. I named this entire chapter after it. So apparently, in the year 1100, according to one of the books I read, London had a problem with an exceptionally large pack of dogs. Apparently, according to the descriptions, these dogs were short in body and extremely fierce. The story goes these packs would congregate at night around St. Paul's Cathedral, and in such large numbers, they became a great danger to pedestrians walking in the environs of that church. Special mention is given to the dangers they posed, or in other words, it sounds like the people they were attacking, and these were the old and infirm solo travellers to the region, and those who travelled in groups but were without sticks to beat off these dogs. This all sounds pretty horrendous. Apparently it was so serious that at the folk moot held at St. Paul's Cross, the residents complained, and nothing was done. And the dogs continued to gather off an evening, and the attacks continued. So at the next folk moot, the residents complained again, and nothing was done. And the dogs continued to gather off an evening, and the attacks continued. What? Local Londoners complaining about a nuisance and the local authorities don't seem to be doing anything about it? That's odd. Let's hope the city doesn't start doing this kind of thing as time passes, eh? Anyway, finally, after over a year or about a year of complaints at the third folk moot, the residents complained a third time. And something was done. It was ordered that all the local residents of London had to keep their dogs locked up at night. And so the edict was issued, and nothing changed. The dogs would gather together into some large feral pack around St. Paul's, and the residents would have to avoid the region. Well, that was it. More complaints were issued, and finally, an edict was issued to enforce the extermination of the entire pack of dogs. Only the night before this slaughter was supposed to take place, all of the dogs went missing. What I love about this story is that it offers us some insights into life in London at the time. Remember, we're only about 23 years since William the Conqueror introduced that curfew law. No one was supposed to have any lit flames in London in case of starting a fire. And given also the city had burnt down in the subsequent years, I could be wrong, but it seems to me that people would not have been wandering around at night in London with torches whatsoever. If you remember that description I gave some chapters ago from another historian who suggested towns like London could have been locked up secure at night with chains left across roads to trip up people out and, and basically people didn't need to be out at night really. 
The impression I got was that these packs had become a problem in the night time, but who on earth was going out at night? The ordinance that people should not let their dogs out at night suggests these were not wild strays. These were pets, if pet is the correct term to use in the relationship between Londoners and their animal companions in the 11th century. That would make sense to me. It isn't that long ago that the idea of allowing a dog into the house seems strange to people. So, Londoners allowing their dogs roam free in an evening, knowing it will make its way back to the house for food in the morning, yeah, that makes sense. St. Paul's, where the dogs gathered, was at this time a building site. It had been destroyed in the fire about a dozen years earlier. The building would take centuries to complete, so the work was ongoing. That would have made it a busy place, and I imagine covered in noise and work crews. Maybe not large work crews, but skilled ones. And ultimately, it was a place that was busy, noisy, and dangerous. So I can't imagine the dogs congregating around it during the day. But as those workers left, the region would have become significantly quieter. After all, the church wasn't in operation. It would have been a large, empty space, ideal for packs of dogs to find themselves congregating in. So the image I have is of late afternoon and early evening, the twilight hours sending back to their domiciles the residents and workers of London, the late mealtime when, newly fed perhaps, owners would turn out their dogs before they closed down for the evening. For me, that's where I think these dogs come from. The initial reading I had of it said there were as many as 3,000 dogs involved, and I'm incredibly skeptical of it being that high, but I would have gone along with it being maybe a few hundred. Enough that the dogs couldn't be moved on by the residents easily, but I can't say that for certain. Did the dogs threaten people or attack? The impression I got is that they were attacking people. The list of people threatened is too oddly specific for me to think otherwise. And the final result, the end of the story, did the threat of killing their pets finally get owners to start keeping their dogs locked up at night? Or was this the greatest case of dog napping in the history of London? I have more questions than I have answers. But I love this story as it brings to life a nice little insight into the life of London at the time. The problem I have is I often find historians will include stories like this, but I don't see the sources that they cite, so I repeat them. But I worry I've missed something that says it was untrue somewhere else. I'll tell you stories like this in good faith, but I will always, dear listener, correct myself when I do make a mistake. Oh, and I did make a mistake three episodes ago. Bishop Maurice, the Bishop of London, was Chancellor of England until only the year 1085 or so. After that, someone else held the position. I mention this because back then I was making out he was still Chancellor and was able to channel funds towards London as an extension of his power as opposed to him having great influence as a former Chancellor, and that the actual Lord Chancellor of England had been, since his time in office, Archbishop Gerard of York, followed by the rather brilliant Robert Blowit. It makes little difference to the story of London, but I do have OCD, so I have to correct myself. Anyway, I suppose I should return to William Rufus and his death, and what happened next in London. In the climate of uncertainty about what William Rufus would do concerning Aquitaine and Normandy, 
William went hunting in the New Forest. You have to understand what the New Forest was back then. When William the Conqueror had taken over, he had wanted to create a hunting space near the south coast. Hunting was the preferred sport of the early medieval kings. You got to practice battlefield skills, it was seen as noble and vigorous and all that palaver. The Conqueror had wanted a place where, when he wanted to return to Normandy, but the weather was keeping him bound in England, he could go hunting easily waiting for the weather to clear. Thus was born the Nova Foresta. The new forest wasn't all forest then as now, it was a mixture of terrains and territories. Yes, there were forested areas, there were also open spaces filled with bracken, and there was shrubland and heather. Lurid English descriptions of William the Conqueror creating the new forest said it had been done with him cruelly destroying 30 villages and 60 parishes and depopulating the entire region, but as with all things, hyperbole is in effect here. The region was filled with forestry officials and their families, huntsmen who would witness royal writs if they were nearby. The New Forest was a location some felt was already stained with the blood of the family of William the Conqueror. I've been telling you the story of the sons of William, uh, Robert and William Rufus, but in between them had been another brother, Richard. Richard had been hunting in the New Forest 30 years earlier to William Rufus and by all descriptions, he'd ridden hard and smashed his head into a, a low-hanging branch and that had killed him. Here, William Rufus was killed by a stray arrow in the year 1100. We think it was a stray arrow. One of the issues we have is there are basically several accounts of his death written by different historians like Gaymar Wace and Odric Vitalis, and they all kind of agree that William Rufus had just finished dinner and was going out for a hunt. But then after that, things get contradictory. The standard version is that they all dismounted to go after a deer, and as, as it went past, a man called Walter Tyrrell was dazzled by the sun in his eyes, and he shot an arrow at the deer, which missed it and hit the king. William looked shocked, broke the shaft of the arrow, collapsed, fell on the arrow point, driving it deeper into him, and he died. Tyrrell saw this, panicked, jumped on his horse and fled. Gaynor's version is that the hunting party was in a semicircular formation, and the king had aimed his own bolt at the stag and was stood next to a tree to give him cover when suddenly an arrow flew in and hit him in the chest, fired by parties unknown. Tyrrell was suspected, according to Gamer, simply because he fled the scene. This version had a dying William Rufus begging the huntsman to take him to church to give him the last rites, but so grievous were his injuries that they knew he wouldn't make it, so using grass aped the ceremony so he could at least feel he was going to go to heaven. Wace's version says the king was actually getting his bow restrung, and Walter Tyrrell's shot had been a misfire, possibly even rebounding off a tree. The aftermath also has confusing accounts. William of Malsbury said that no one pursued Tyrrell, and that some of the noble members of the hunting party immediately returned to their estates to fortify their castles, expecting war. He said others looted the king's body, and he leaves us with the image of local residents of the New Forest actually carrying the corpse of William Rufus to Winchester to the cathedral, but includes the lurid image that the king bled the entire way there, suggesting he was still alive as he dripped blood into the soil of the New Forest. 
Gamer says the shock of the death left several noble companions of the king hysteric with grief before someone called Gilbert of Lays shouted, quote, For God's sake, stop grieving and be quiet. Nothing will bring him back, unquote. And then they were the ones who carried the body away. Uderic Vitalis describes the utter confusion in the aftermath of his death, but focuses upon the actions of his younger brother, Henry, who was supposedly present at the moment. In his version, Henry saw his brother killed and then rode straight away to Winchester, and when he got there, he demanded possession of the royal treasury as he was the heir. He was greeted with a man called Walter of Brituil, who stood in his way and objected, who said Duke Robert of Normandy was the eldest son of the conqueror and he was heir and the treasury belonged to him. A standoff began and escalated as more people turned up and eventually this account says Henry drew his sword. William of Brituil backed down and Henry seized the treasury. So what was it? An accident? An assassination? Hate to say, we'll never know. Not fully. Certainly, it was very, very convenient for Henry, Rufus's baby brother. If you remember back in chapter 47, I made a big thing about how I believe one of the signs that convinced me that Harold Godwinson staged a coup was the fact he forced his coronation to happen so quickly, like within 24 hours of the death of Edward the Confessor. Well, here we are in the year 1100, and Henry I was crowned in Westminster just three days after his brother's death. Something's off. He had to hurry the ceremony, I think clearly trying to prevent his older brother Robert's claim. And that immediately presented him with a problem. Archbishop Anselm was out of the country due to his disagreements with Rufus. The Archbishop of York may have been willing to travel down to London, but this was happening so fast, chances are he probably wouldn't have even heard about the death when the king was being crowned. Henry was in a hurry in Westminster, and by all accounts, that meant that the prelate who oversaw the ceremony was none other than Bishop Maurice, former Chancellor of England, and the third highest ranked priest in the country. At the hastily arranged ceremony, Henry did a couple of things that really do seem like he was trying to shore up a hastily made claim on the throne. He issued his, quote, Coronation Charter of Liberties, unquote, which was a document promising to undo basically all the bad things his brother had done. The Charter of Liberties is often held as a great precursor of the Magna Carta, but in truth, it was just a simple document that basically says, all that stuff my older brother did, I'm not going to do it. Very specifically, virtually everything listed on it refers back to some sharp taxation or money extraction policy implemented by William Rufus during his regime. This was a popularist move and nothing more. Henry treated the coronation charter like a modern politician treats an election manifesto. It's enough to get you support, and then when you're in power, you can just ignore it. Although it must be said, one stipulation in the Charter did not seem to be based on the actions of his brother. The Ninth Clause says, quote, I forgive all murders committed before I was crowned, 
Subsequent murders shall stand before the justice of the crown, unquote. Which is a really convenient clause if someone like Walter Tyrrell had just murdered your older brother for you. Henry's coronation, so hastily done, and his grand chartner, witnessed by Maurice, was all about overthrowing the old regime and establishing himself as the new power. And I think it was a hastily made, almost ad hoc, on-the-spot plan. You want proof? Well, it was less than a week after he took the throne that Renal Flambard was arrested by King Henry. And we had Henry publicising the fact that he was the only son of the Conqueror who'd been born in England, and as such was the one true successor of William the Conqueror. Like, that mattered to the Norman nobility. But it could have mattered to the likes of the residents of London. Indeed, there is a big clue that Henry wanted to gain popular support right across the board. He declared his older brother's taxation policies to be bad, he arrests the financial wizard behind it all, and then... He marries the daughter of the former King of Scotland, and in that act we see Henry was a smart-thinking politician. See, while from now on we'll use the name she used, which is Matilda or Maud of England, it must be understood, this young queen was not originally called Matilda. She adopted the name as queen. She was born Edith. Her mother was the sister of Edgar Aetheling. Her grandfather, Edward the Exile, her great-grandfather was none other than Edmund Ironsides. She was a branch of the dynasty of Alfred the Great, a shade of England that was, reborn now as the wife of the new king. Did people fall for that? Well, Edith, Matilda was popular as queen, so I think many did. It's worth noting that just before we close out the year 1100, another much-overlooked incident takes place. Prince Louis of France gained permission of his father to sail across the Channel and visit this new king, Henry, which I cannot help but feel was about the situation in France and the supposed mortgage of the lands of the Duchy of Aquitaine. We do know that Henry had no inclination to extend that offer to William the Troubadour, and he eventually had the mortgage to lose to pay for his expedition. Did Henry organise the assassination of William Rufus? I see no evidence to suggest it. In fact, I see no evidence to suggest anything. Then he saw his older brother die, thought really quick on his feet, and decided to go for the throne. And like that, Henry I was king, and William Rufus began to be forgotten about, real quick, or maybe not entirely. As I was researching this whole period, there was a throwaway observation made by one historian that I was reading that stuck in my head. They said that William II, splendid, proud, glorious Rufus, a great king with obvious flaws, became the model for an imaginary king that was soon to be constructed by a writer. 35 or so years from now, Geoffrey of Monmouth was going to write his History of the Kings of Britain, and included in that vast fictional work in books 9 and 10, we have the great traditional story of King Arthur, this vibrant, glorious, but deeply flawed king. To this historian, they felt that in his own way, 
William Rufus lives on, being the clear role model for what Geoffrey saw as King Arthur. I couldn't possibly comment, but I like the idea. I think it would be a fitting end to his story. And at this, I'm going to end this chapter here. Thank you for listening. Do apologise if it seems a little bit disrupted. I've had enormous disruptions going on in the real world, and making this episode was actually extraordinarily difficult. But I'll leave that for another time. I'll see you next week for another chapter of the story of London. Bye.